0: If you're new to classical music, we're going to talk about 25 essential pieces you should know. And hello everybody. Welcome to the Musician Toolkit episode number 17. My name is David Lane and it is great to be with you once again. So just a few technical notes before we begin. First of all, there is uh, a new roof being put on a house about three houses down, and uh, I can hear the hammering just fine. I don't know how well the mic does. Uh, may not be able to do anything about that. It's not really loud, but you might. it might sound like someone's playing a drum in the background, <laughs> and if so, that's what's going on, and I apologize for that, but uh, it really couldn't be helped with their schedule and my schedule. Second, my voice is not in top form today. This is definitely a spring allergies kind of day (laughs) that I'm recording on. And third, this is just for the YouTube audience. There's a chance that you might be hearing a version that does not include musical examples of this. I I do feel like it's important to try to do that. So I will make a first attempt to upload a version with that and we'll see how YouTube handles it. But uh, if you're on the podcast feed, you'll absolutely be hearing some musical examples to go along with what we're talking about today. Before I go on with today's episode, I just want to thank Fonz and encourage you, if you have a private studio or one-on-one business of any kind that involves scheduling and billing, Fonds has an app that will make your life easier, and they have a free trial, and you can access that through the link in my show notes. Okay, on to today's episode. So any number of people could take a look at this podcast And if I was asking for advice on how to grow it, how to uh, be more engaging, I know that one of the things that they would tell me would be, and I've heard this advice given to other podcasters, you need to know your audience. You need to narrow it down. So who is this podcast for? For example, is this podcast for professional musicians who want to improve their, their overall cachet as musicians to basically improve their overall toolkit so that they're even better professional musicians? Is this for music students who are already at a collegiate level? Like, in other words, music majors who want to be able to succeed in the real world after they graduate? Uh, Is this for your high school musicians and or kind of equivalent? You might be an adult that's starting out, but you're kind of on the level of a typical high school musician and you're trying to on on this next stage of your life, you want to be a great musician. So, is this for that type of level? Or is this for beginning music students? Is this for those who are on the fence about becoming musicians, or just for whatever reason haven't gotten started yet? So, a podcasting coach or a business coach would tell me, I need to pick preferably one, but no more than two. So far, the the correct answer for me right now is all of the above. Now as this podcast grows I might narrow that down. What will help me do that is feedback. The more messages you send me about not only what you don't like but what you do like, I take I take all that to heart. Like if you think this episode I'm going to go over today is just completely irrelevant, you should let me know, but if if it helps you, I need to know that because I have a part 2 planned down planned later in this year. But these are the kind of things that I weigh in. I value every email, every direct message, every voice message that you send me at speakpipe.com slash Musician Toolkit. Any way would you like that any episode, if you enjoyed it or if you didn't think it was relevant. Now, I realize a lot of people won't send that because they know, well, it sounds like I'm thinking that you know, this podcast that's intended for anyone in the world to listen, it's all about me. Well, when you send me a message, you tell me that you're, you're telling me that you listened to the podcast. So I, I incredibly am appreciative of that. And I want to know what you liked, what you didn't. Okay. So this podcast today is based on a blog that I originally wrote almost exactly three years ago. I wrote it originally on April 15th, 2020. And I've since moved my blog around, so there's a blog, an updated blog version of this. You can read that. I'm going to talk a little bit more about each piece as we go. But if you remember, our previous episode was episode 16 with Andrew Callow, and we talked about score study and talking about what what audience are we talking to? That was definitely not for the casual, just getting started musician. Even when we talked about beginning score study, it's kind of assumed that you have a basic understanding of music theory and and a basic understanding of composition and orchestration and that you're, you know, at least an intermediate musician, if not getting close to advanced in some ways. So this episode could be for a couple of different types of people. One is that you are a, a pretty accomplished musician, but maybe in jazz, rock, pop, hip hop, R&B, it it could be some area where you're just ignorant of classical music. I have to make sure language is is still understood. You know, I don't, I'm not sure how many, if there's still people out there that hear ignorant thinking, are you saying I'm stupid? No, I'm just saying you're lacking experience or knowledge in that certain area. So ignorant of classical music. There are plenty of things in music that I'm ignorant about. And the second and most likely type of listener to get something out of this are music students who just haven't done much in classical music. So here's how this blog post came around. (laughs) There was a week where I asked this question three times. A a Tchaikovsky piece came up in their lesson, and I asked them, have you ever heard of the composer Tchaikovsky? And the student, in all three cases, said no. And then I asked, have you heard this as I play this tune? That's Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from The Nutcracker. And I asked him, have you heard that? And they, and the answer was always yes. And it always is yes. It's like maybe a few, maybe maybe an exception here, here and there. So one of the things I found as a music teacher is that not everyone who studies music is going to embrace classical music. And, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. Some teachers would say it is. I don't. But regardless of your genre of choice, there are certain pieces you should know to have a solid foundation as a musician. And I, and I would turn this around on a pop side. I, I don't think you're a complete musician in 2023 if you haven't heard at least one song by Taylor Swift, if you uh, or Ariana Grande. If you don't, know who they are <laughs> that that's not a good thing and if you haven't at least heard some of their music and it doesn't mean that you have to like the music it it's fine if you do but every genre has some pieces like this so i have a list of pieces here i want to go over for classical music and i could have made it a top 100 Uh, But instead, I think at the moment, it's a top 50 and here's 25. And later on in the year, after I get a few more episodes in, I will do a part two and give you 25 more. And thinking about what pieces I wanted to share here, I didn't want to choose what I think are the 25 best pieces of music. These are not, I'm not going to get into deep. um, Like, for example, I'm not going to be sharing, you know, anything like the Art of the Fugue by Bach. This that's a piece you know that if you are studying classical music and you're serious about that genre that uh, and the lessons that come from that, then you should be familiar at least a little bit with that piece. But if you are a musician in some other area, it's okay if you know of Art of the Fugue, but you don't really know the piece. Like, you wouldn't recognize it if you heard it. So I'm just going to go over the pieces that I think you should know by accident. Like... These are the pieces that might get played in a commercial, might be in a movie, might be on TV. Uh, it, it's, it's basically pop classical pieces. These are classical pieces that have been part of our culture. And maybe some more than others. I might have a few in there that I think you, you should know that maybe aren't quite as popular as others. So I want to get that out of the way. <laughs> um, I know more than a few people that I like, and so I'm respectful when I say this, that are classical elitists out there. And it's not just, so so what classical elitists are often known for is Beethoven's fifth, so overrated. Beethoven's ninth, again, you know, <laughs> and anyways, all uh, basically they would probably do eye rolls at most of the pieces that I play because they've, in their mind, moved beyond that. But there is a reason that these pieces stand out. And it's really, to me, it's a challenge. If you, if you hear any of this list and your, your instinct is to roll your eyes, you think it's too basic of a list. You think I'm just naming off the, the most popular pieces. So if that's the case, my challenge to you would be come off that pedestal just for a moment and put yourself in the mind of someone who is discovering this music for the first time not somebody who has studied or experienced a lot of classical music. And try to see what are the, the gems this offers. Okay, if you read this on the blog, I'm gonna be very basic in my description of each piece. I'll go over a few more things that, that, I, that I observe about it as I'm, as I'm talking here on this podcast episode or this YouTube video. Now, something that I mentioned on the blog post, because you know, the original blog post was for my students who are primarily piano students. I'm not including pieces like Beethoven's Fur Elise, that which most of my students eventually, if they stick with me for even a kind of a medium amount of time, they will learn to play it themselves. But I'm thinking of the large and grand pieces that you should know the composer and the title when you hear it. Most of these pieces, not all of them are for orchestra. So as I go through this list, uh, I'll play a few clips as we go. They'll be very short, but these are not obscure pieces at all you should you can find all of these pieces on either youtube spotify apple amazon anywhere you stream music and i'm going to list them alphabetically by composer and in most cases not all i will give some recommended recordings sometimes they're my own recommendations but sometimes um i've gotten recommendations from uh, critics, but also other classical fans of classical music and that you know looked at some message boards as well to gather some of these some of these recommendations. And then there's a few cases I don't I don't have any specific recommendations and that's something that you could share with me. If you If you hear any list here and you disagree with my take or I tell you that I don't have a recommendation and you do, send me a message if you want that message included on the podcast send it as a voice message at speakpipe.com slash musician toolkit. Again, that link is also in the show notes. All right, so alphabetical by composer, number one, Toccata and Fugue in D minor it is listed in the catalog as BWV565. <laughs> You've heard this around Halloween. It's an organ piece, but there's a terrific orchestral arrangement by Leopold Stokowski that was used in Disney's Fantasia in 1940, and as my students get more advanced, I at least have them learn a version of the toccata, not the fugue. Um, in a in a version for the piano that was transcribed by Louis Brasson, and and by the way, here's another note for 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 those who really know what they're talking about when it comes to repertoire and conductors and performers. Uh, I may butcher multiple pronunciations. I'm sorry. I'm doing <laughs> doing the best I can with the resources I have on the organ. Uh, the most recommended version is a 1988 recording and I'm not sure about this, but I believe it's Hans Kestner. You can see these names in print if you go to my blog, and it'll be at davidlaymusic.com slash blog, and uh, you know just look for the the title of this blog, which is 25 Essential Classical Pieces to Know. So just a few more things about the Toccata and Fuga. Toccata means a, it means touch. It comes from tocari And um, the, the Toccata is basically uh, brilliant, fast notes, you you know, it starts off with that famous mordant at the beginning and then descends down. And then you get these rapidly played notes between the hands, which I think loses a little bit of something in the orchestration. But, you know, it's very impressive, either on the piano or the organ. And that comes to that comes to a big close and then you start off with the fugue and a, and a fugue is something we'll probably have an episode about counterpoint and so forth but it's a very formal structure it involves anywhere from three to four voices with one with a with a theme or a melody or a subject as they call it that enters one voice at a time. And very often if the first voice comes in, Uh, in the key of the tonic, in other words, in D minor, then you're very likely to get something that's a fifth higher or fourth lower coming in as the answer. So we keep it simple for now. I'm not going to describe that. Um, The Fugue is, in all cases, if you have Prelude and Fugue, Toccata and Fugue, go ahead and count on if you're a performer. The Fugue is harder. (laughs) Um, If anyone has ever played a piece of music With something and fugue, where the fugue was easier, please let me know. I would love to know what that is. All right, so that was Toccata and Fugue, BWV 565 by J.S. Bach. Piece number two that you should know is Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber. Samuel Barber is quite possibly my favorite concert composer, my favorite classical composer, or at least one of the top few. I'd say definitely top 10, maybe top five and some days it feels like he's number one adagio for strings is not in my opinion his best work but it is one of the most heartwarming and maybe one of the saddest pieces of music that he that he ever wrote and he wrote it when he was young This music has become almost a cliche in some in some movies. It was used in films like Platoon and The Elephant Man. And it's almost always played as as someone or or someone's people are dying. Uh, I'm a fan of the British show Red Dwarf. And the last episode of series eight, there's a death scene and it's, <laughs> it's Adagio for strings again. It's a great piece that I would love to get into theory-wise because if you look at the score, you'll see five flats. But if you listen to it, it sounds like it's an E-flat minor, which has six flats. But this is Barber playing around with some of the modes. He's getting a lot of like an E-flat Dorian and actually kind of a little bit more of an F Phrygian. That's that's something that we could do a deep dive into. But it is a lush piece. that is written for just string orchestras, originally written for string quartet. Uh, and that's, if you find the string quartet version, that's nice for for historical purposes, and you might even learn to like it as much, if not more. But the, nothing beats the full string orchestral version. Some recommended recordings that I've gotten is uh, Thomas Shipper conducting the New York Philharmonic. That's a 1965 recording. And then I don't have the year, but Eugene Ormandy conducting the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I personally... I like the version that was included by Andre Previn in the London Symphony Orchestra with the soundtrack recording of The Elephant Man. Number three, and here's where a lot of my friends who play an orchestra will want to cover their ears or walk away for about a minute or two. Symphony number five by Ludwig von Beethoven. You know it as Beethoven's fifth. There are four movements to the symphony, and the first movement is the Super famous when it's based off of four notes. And if you're really tired of hearing it, you should still listen to it because it'll teach you so much, especially if you want to arrange for composed music, of how you can take four notes and get so much out of it. And one of the things that's really neat, that this was pointed out in college. I want to point this out real quick. Listen to the 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 four notes. I'm going to play a version on the piano. And here's the next two notes. Now, let's imagine you're hearing that for the very first time. What key do you think it's in? I'm playing a G, 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 E flat and an F, 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 D. Well, G and E-flat are the third and root of an E-flat major chord. F and D is a fifth and third of a B-flat chord. In other words, one five in the key of E-flat. So let me put these chord... Let me play this in with those chords. If you heard that for the first time, you wouldn't be surprised. But you have heard the, the way Beethoven did, and you realize that what he actually did was G to E flat was not the those first those first few notes. That is not the third and root of an E flat. Is the fifth and third of C minor, and then the F D is the seventh and fifth of a G seven. So he he's he's taken something that you think odds are you're an E flat major, but when he fleshes out the chord, you realize you are in C minor. So here's what Beethoven actually wrote. All four movements are great i won't say much about the second and the third you know because i'm um, again i'm trying to go over 25 pieces in a reasonable amount of time but you know definitely check out the whole symphony but the last movement is is really impressive representing this symphony going from dark to light because as dark as the first movement is the fourth movement could not be any brighter it's it's c major it's heroic and if you want to learn a little bit of something about the use of tonic and dominant that's the first note of the scale and the fifth note of the scale check out what's going on in the bass you know the the timpani the string bass and so forth there's nothing but a tonic and dominant for nearly a minute Not a lot of repeated composers on this list, but number four is once again Ludwig von Beethoven, Symphony number nine. I think if you ask me to choose what's the more important piece to know, it might be Symphony number nine. I picked Symphony number five because I just don't know what's going on if you don't know that piece. You have to correct that. But Symphony nine is an important one for a lot of reasons. First of all, I love the origin story, which is that. You know, Beethoven was completely deaf by the when he wrote this and when this was performed, and he was on stage with his back to the audience, and he had to be turned around to see the overwhelming applause. Um, and this was wonderfully captured uh, with Gary Oldman in the movie *Immortal Beloved*, which is, you know, I'm not a big fan of that movie as a whole, but the, uh, but that scene they absolutely nailed this is this is where the the tune known as Ode to Joy comes from and it's an hour-long piece don't skip ahead because it is if you listen to this one especially multiple times you will hear how the material develops throughout and how it just culminates in a satisfying conclusion when it finally gets to the ode to joy section of course that uh, the second movement really dark fantastically fun scherzo in d minor This is an important piece of music. This is a piece that literally changed how every piece of music was composed afterwards and ushered in a whole new era. You could argue that this piece started, it ended the classical era, and it began the Romantic era. And I actually hold that view. There are people who say, well, there's some overlap. Recommended recordings. I'll give you a classic, and I'll give you a newer one. Uh, I know I'll butcher this. Herbert von Karajan. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Conducting the Berlin Philharmonic in 1962. And uh, Simon Rattle, also with the Berlin Philharmonic in 2015. But there are so many other great recordings. These are just two that I recommend. All right, number five. The Hungarian Dances of Johannes Brahms. Now, this one was tricky because Brahms wrote a lot of great music and I don't think these are great pieces but when we're trying to objectively talk about what should Brahms be known for it's like I think Brahms it would Brahms would cringe I'm sure if he thought that most people only know him for the lullaby which was one of four or five songs from his opus 49 cycle very simple little piece he wrote large scale works. It's like there are so many pieces. I mean, I just throw out some. You should definitely know his piano concerto number two. You should know all four of his symphonies. You should know academic festival overture to the tragic overture, his requiem, and a lot of his piano pieces. His piano quintet is that there are so many great pieces of Brahms. Again, that's not what this list is about. These are the pieces that if you say, I don't really listen to classical music, you should still know these. So, These pieces are a little controversial because Brahms did not write these melodies and he did not credit where he got them from, which was largely from um, Hungarian peasants, what we call gypsies. So these are not his best, but they are a lot of fun and they do get they have made their way around pop culture. There are 21 of them, and it can be tricky to know how to listen to them because he originally wrote them for a what's called a four hand piano duet. If you're not sure what that means, it means two people. With two hands, each on one piano, as opposed to a two-piano duet, which would mean each person on their own piano. So he wrote them for that. There's also a solo piano version. There's also piano and violin, and it goes on and on. Brahms and a bunch of other orchestrators over the years have arranged them for orchestra. So there's not a cohesive collection of all 21, but you can find the the orchestra pieces, and I think they work best like that but you can find recordings of the original the four-hand piano music which is on the Naxos label volume two brahms Four-Hand piano music from 1997 but check out any of the various orchestral versions as well too many to recommend so these are just great melodies great examples of rhythm uh, again there's 21 my favorites are number four which was loosely adapted for a a rather obscure Mel Brooks film called The Twelve Chairs. The most famous of them all is probably number five, My favorite is number six. And then I won't play any examples, but I would also number seven and 17. Those are also great ones as well. All right. Number six is the Rodeo Suite from Aaron Copeland. I really went back and forth on this. I thought about uh, Appalachian Spring. There's also Billy the Kid. There's also, if I was going for a shorter piece, there's Fanfare for the Common Man. There's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of pieces that that if you if you heard by Aaron Copeland say, "Hey, I've heard that before," but I picked Rodeo Suite because, or Rodeo, it's, I've heard both ways. It sound it sounds like cliche Western movie music, and you want to keep in mind that that Copeland invented it, and uh, the most famous is probably the Hoedown, the last movement, and. If you hear this, and it sounds at all familiar, uh, if you are a certain age, like my age or close to it, or older, you might recognize it as it's the beef, it's what's for dinner commercial. When it comes to recommended recordings, you cannot go wrong with uh leonard bernstein and i also happen to like leonard slatkin as a conductor so saint louis symphony all right i have to include a piano piece mainly because it's frederick chopin and if it's chopin it has piano in it if it's not for piano only i wanted to pick a single piece rather than a collection of pieces so that's why i didn't include like the preludes or the etudes or so many things Uh, i wanted a piece that i thought would stick out on its own that's very famous so uh, I chose the Grand Brillante, Opus 18. So the thing about Chopin is he is the piano composer of all time. He, he more than any composer ever, concentrated his efforts on the, on the development of piano music to the point to where he really didn't write anything else. He didn't write any symphonies. He didn't write any operas. He didn't write any string quartets. He occasionally included other instruments with the piano including some piano concertos and some chamber pieces, but everything has piano in it. So the Grand Vals Briante Opus 18 is a lively example of a large Viennese waltz. And I also chose this piece because this is not a first Chopin for piano students. This is one you have to really kind of develop into. You probably played, you know, a half dozen, ten Chopin pieces in your life before you get to this one. So many great uh, recommendations on my blog. I actually posted a YouTube video from Valentina, Lisitsa. Great to just watch that in action. So definitely check that out. Um, but Vladimir Ashkenazi, Lang Lang. There are so many great pianists out there. I definitely encourage you to to just check out a variety of versions. It's not a very long piece. All right, number eight, Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn by Claude Debussy. So in my mind, there are three pieces of music that changed classical music forever after they premiered. And they're all on this list. So the first, I, I mentioned Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And this is the second one. Before this piece Orchestra music was getting bigger and bigger without, res- without restraint. Uh, if you look at the orchestration for Mahler's Second Symphony, I mean, it's just spilling off the stage with all the brass and woodwinds, and it says for the strings, as basically translates as, as many as you can afford to hire. Debussy opted for a smaller orchestra and with more color, and he introduced new harmonies and radically new ways of combining music what Debussy and Ravel did with harmonies actually directly affected some of your earliest jazz arrangers. This is a piece I may come back to some sometime. I use it a lot in my lessons. It starts off with this unaccompanied flute solo. Every time that that theme comes back, it's harmonized. The first chord is different. So sometimes that melody is the fifth. Sometimes it's the seventh. One time it's even the 13th. Okay, my personal favorite recording is on the Philips label. It's known as the Philips Duo. It's a two-disc set of orchestral music by Debussy, conducted by Bernard Haitink and the Royal Concertable Orchestra. Number nine, Dvorak's Symphony Number no. 9 from the New World. In the, in the 1800s, Dvorak, who was a Czech composer, uh, he visited the United States, and he loved his trip here. And he, and he actually composed quite a few pieces in celebration. But this one is the most famous, it is known as From the New World. All four movements are wonderful, but the one that you really need to know, the most famous one is the second movement, which is Largo. recording that was highly recommended to me is Raphael Kubelik conducting the Berlin Philharmonic. My personal favorite is Sir Charles Mackerras and the London Philharmonic Orchestra. All right, number 10 on the list is George Gershwin's Rapstein Blue. This is a piano concerto. So concerto is a piece for solo instrument like a piano plus orchestra. So anytime you see concerto, that's what's going on. Gershwin crossed... The classical world with the jazz world in a way that i don't think is still it's still never been surpassed and and while i sometimes will debate true classical fans on whether or not this is the better piano and orchestra work compared to gershwin's own actual piano concerto in f uh, i prefer the concerto in f there's no denying rapstein blue is the game changer It is the one that truly stands out some great themes from, from the opening with the clarinet gliss. Some of the fast passages. To the really grand theme that brings it to a close. The most recommended recording I could find is Earl Wilde performing with the Boston Symphony Orchestra Conducted by Eric Leindorf on RCA in 1962. All right, number 11 is the Pure Ghent Suite number one by Ed, Edward Grieg. Now, if you are diehard into this, you really want to want the full experience, find the whole Pure Ghent music. It's is an incidental music for a play. There's a second suite, and there's also the complete music, and then there's this first suite. And all of these pieces, I think, have been played quite a bit in culture, but Two of them really stand out. There's morning. which is the first movement of the suite and then there's the last movement of the suite, which is in the hall of Mountain King. Now, the great thing about that piece is that there's the instrumental version for the suite, but if you get the whole incidental music for the play, you can hear the vocal version, which is almost a little terrifying. And uh, it was used, I heard it first for the first time in the trailer for the movie Needful Things, an adaptation of a Stephen King story back in the 90s. All right, number 12 is Water Music by George Frederick Handel. So I opted not to send you to the three-hour composition, The Messiah. But you really, at least you should know the Hallelujah Chorus from that piece. Water Music is a collection of small ensemble pieces, and it was written to be played on a royal ship. And they are some of the most famous and accessible of Baroque pieces ever. Um, my there's three suites, and my favorite one is the G minor one, which is the is the by far the least famous of the three suites. But there are so many great passages from from this music. My favorite recording is from Raymond Leopard and the English Chamber Orchestra. Number 13 is The Planets by Gustav Holst. So if you like Star Wars, you need to check out this piece that was written 60 years before the first Star Wars movie, episode four. And it was a huge inspiration on the sound. actually included some clips of this in the previous episode, so I won't include much here. The most recommended recording is by Charles Jutois and the Montreal Symphony Orchestra from 1998. And it is a great recording. For a version, especially on Mars, that's slower, but with great power and sound quality. Try John Elliott Gardner from about the same time period conducting the Philharmonia Orchestra. Number 14 is Hungarian Rhapsody Number no. 2 by Franz Liszt. If Chopin developed piano music as we know it, Liszt took it to another level. Hungarian Rhapsody is one of several Rhapsodies, their, and they exist as orchestral pieces, but the piano version is essential. Again, try to watch this live. I, I put a link. It's also, again, the, the pianist Valentina Lisitsa. Again, and there's a YouTube link for that on my blog, a post version of this. This is a version. It's been parodied in cartoons such as with Tom and Jerry, with Bugs Bunny, and Liszt goes on and on this is this is just a famous piece that you should know number 15 is a midsummer night's dream overture and suite now this might be easier to just go listen to the incidental music because it's not that much longer than the overture and the suite he wrote the overture inspired by the play when he was 16 years old And then he was asked to do the incidental music later and extracted that as a sweep. And of course, I I won't play all of the examples that are famous that you should know, but the one that you have definitely heard, especially if you've ever been to a wedding, most likely is the very famous wedding march. Again, I recommend the whole incidental music and it is, uh, I would definitely recommend Andre Previn conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. By the way, incidental music, I, you know, just glossed by that incidental music means it is music written for a play. Think of basically it's a film score, but you're not writing it for a film. You're writing it for a live action. It's a play. All right. Number 16, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, overture to the marriage of Figaro. And there's a lot that I could choose. And I know there's one that'll pop up again in part two of the series. Uh, But this one's my favorite and it doesn't take very long to hear. It's from an opera. And if you're ever going to listen to one Mozart opera, you cannot go wrong with this one. It's my personal favorite. Although there's a couple of other classics that you should definitely consider checking out, um, such as the Magic Flute and Don Giovanni. But the overture to this is just so fun. I think it's just a perfect piece of music. And I've heard it, in movies like it is it, it begins the movie Trading Places. So many great recordings. I was very hard to find a consensus recommendation. All right, number 17 is Pictures at an Exhibition. This originally was written as a very difficult suite of piano music, and it's very seldom heard in its original form. You might hear excerpts, but the whole suite is very demanding to play. But it's worth checking out, but not to me as much as Ravel's orchestra version. And there are other composers, uh, other orchestrators who have arranged this for orchestra, but this just works so well as an orchestral piece. So this is a piece about paintings in a museum. And there are various pieces called Promenade, which represent the transition from one painting to another. And of all the pieces that I think that you should definitely know when you hear them, the finale, the Great Gate of Kiev, is one you should know. It sounds like I don't even know if it's ever been on a sports show, but it sounds like it should. If you're going to listen to the piano version, I would check out Michael Pletnev. But if you're going to check out the orchestral version uh, that Ravel orchestrated. Check out Claudio Obato and the London Symphony Orchestra. All right, the 18th piece, Piano Concerto Number no. 2 by Sergei Rachmaninoff. So as I said before, concerto is a piece for a solo instrument, in this case piano, and orchestra. Rachmaninoff wrote four large pieces for this combination, but this one is the most memorable, and it's also a really great story. He was devastated from a negative review of his first symphony, like and and if you read what was written about it, it was very scathing, and um, he was devastated by that. He didn't compose anything for two years, but a psychiatric therapist with the last name of Dahl was able to able to heal him, and was able to say things like "You will write a great symphony," and he took that therapy to heart, and. The music that he wrote within the following year is some of the best that he ever wrote. (laughs) There are several pieces he wrote during that time, but this one was the first thing that he wrote. And it is, I don't know the exact statistics if this is the most performed piano concerto in the world, but it is certainly up there among the most performed concertos ever. By the way, just a movie suggestion, if you like classic movies, 1945 British film called Brief Encounter. It's by the same director um, who did Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia, but this is a really nice quiet film. The entire film score is based off of this piano concerto. The most recommended recording I could find is Vladimir Ashkenazi playing the piano with the Moscow Symphony Orchestra. Uh, conducted by someone who I've only seen in print. I will butcher the pronunciation, but I believe it is Kirill Kondrashin. All right, for number 20, I kind of feel like I'm breaking my own rule here. I'm giving you the composer Maurice Ravel. Now, if I was going to stick with this list, so I'll go ahead and say it. I did not write this on on the blog. If, if you want to hear the Ravel piece that everybody has probably heard before, go check out Bolero. Bolero is a piece that you really have to listen to a certain way to appreciate it. It's all about orchestral variation, but it's the same tune, literally with the same chords over and over and over for several minutes. But that piece the reason I don't recommend it first on, on a list like this is it kept me from exploring other Ravel. I was not impressed with Bolero personally. I appreciate it more now in the context of what he was trying to achieve, but I didn't hear Bolero and think I need to go check out the rest of Ravel. And that was a mistake because I would have missed out on Daphnis and Chloe, which I accidentally heard. And I was like, what is that? And that, that showed me that I need to go check out more of Maurice Ravel. So I actually recommend the whole ballet. It's not a very long piece, but if you, want, if you want to check just a little bit, the suite number two will give you a nice introduction. So Ravel is considered a master of orchestration. Without his innovations and some of the harmonies that he added, which was even more front-runners of jazz harmony than Debussy, the early Disney scores would not sound the way they do. If you listen to, and I'm not talking about the songs, I'm talking about the instrumental scores for something like Snow White or Pinocchio, you'll hear was what, what what people would describe as rebellion orchestration. And you can hear the origins of that with a score like this. This is from a ballet, Daphnis and Chloe. There are a number of recommended re- recordings uh, from orchestras and conductors that I previously recommended. So a lot of these conductors that I've that I've recommended for orchestras, you can't go wrong with going with them. For a highly recommended recording that I by conductor and an orchestra I've not mentioned, again I'm going to butcher this pronunciation: it's Yannick Nezit seguin and the Rotterdam Philharmonic Orchestra from 2011 it was highly recommended. Number 21, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, Scheherazade. Now, Rimsky-Korsakov's piece that you will have heard accidentally is Flight of the Bumblebee, which is a short piece from one of his other suites that's not really a remarkable piece of music compared to his other output. These four pieces are inspired by the tales of the Arabian Nights. The first, second, and four movements are pretty lively, especially the fourth movement, which is my favorite. But the third movement has a lovely melody. That's kind of prototypical late 19th century Russian style. Number 22 is Ave Maria by Franz Schubert. If you're a musician and you're ever asked to play an Ave Maria, you always have to confirm, do they mean the Schubert or do they, do they mean the one that's Bach Guno? And so look up those two versions if you're not sure. The Schubert Ave Maria is, if you're into liturgical, it is not based on the liturgical Ave Maria, which the Bach Guno is text-wise, but it's based on a poem with that title. Schubert wrote more songs that is for solo voice and solo instrument usually piano but actually in this case the harp than any other composer ever i don't i mean i don't think you'll find one who who did more really an astonishing output that he had for this particular one and schubert wrote larger and more important works but this one's a nice intro it's probably the shortest one on the list Uh, It'll take you four or five minutes. You can hear a lot of different versions. I believe the original version is for harp and solo voice, and you can hear men sing it, you can hear women sing it, you can hear um, orchestrated versions, but Ave Maria by Schubert is number 22. Number twenty three is also Spruck Zarathustra by Richard Strauss. You've almost certainly heard the very first minute of this. It starts off with a low C organ bass playing the C, and then the brass come in. And it's very heroic. The first minute you might not have heard the remaining 29 minutes, but it's all very good. And I would highly recommend, and it's just a good introduction to late, very late 19th century, early 20th century style of orchestration. I, I almost call it the kitchen sink orchestration, huge orchestra. I recommend Fritz Reiner and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra or Von Carrion and the Berlin Philharmonic. Again, I said that name again. I'm probably wrong. Let me know if I am. All right, number 24. I told you there are three pieces on this list that changed music forever. This is the third one. Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. This is a piece you've probably heard the name of, even if you haven't heard the piece. This piece and the the ballet choreography and the costumes all went with it infamously caused a riot in its 1913 premiere. It's an acquired taste, but stick with it, because it influenced so much of the past 100 years. It's dissonant harmony, it's wild, seemingly unpredictable rhythms. There's hardly a film score for an action film, especially really from the 1940s through the 1990s that wasn't in some way inspired by Rite of Spring. The expert on Stravinsky as far as composers is Robert Kraft. So any of his recordings are good, but Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein, also does a great job with this particular piece. Okay, 25th on this list is The Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky. So now to come back to full circle. Again, this is a full ballet. I would definitely recommend... Uh, checking the whole thing out it's the ballet you should see it's often in a lot of your areas if you live in a large area you probably have a chance at Christmas time and of course you've got the Sugar Plum Fairy you have the Russian dance you have the Arabian dance you have the Dance of the Reed Flutes And more. Once again, uh, these ten essential pieces give you just a taste of this composer. This is a piece that should be mentioned. The composer didn't really care for it himself, and uh, you know, people who really get into Tchaikovsky will try not to mention it. <laughs> they they will they will point out other pieces like his Serenade for Strings or his Symphonies Four, Five, and Six, all great pieces. Or and for ballets, they'll try to stick with Swan Lake or Sleeping Beauty. But the Nutcracker is essential listening. Um, it's w- one of the first pieces, if not the first piece, to feature the instrument of the Celesta. Once again, uh, of all the recommendations that I could find, the one that I saw the most was Charles Trois and the Montreal Symphony. So again, I've left out quite a bit. These are just 25 pieces. Except for Beethoven, it was one per composer. These are not great, all great. Some of them are, but these are not all the greatest classical pieces written. These are 25 essential pieces that you should know, even if you're not into classical music. So I will have a follow-up for this, but if you have some thoughts, um, I I know that you could tell me pieces I've left out. If you really want to let me know, that's that's fine. It's probably in part two or part three of a series, but feel free to let me know. But I'm especially interested of, on this list, are there certain recordings you like? Feel, Please let me know if, it's a, if there's a conductor, an orchestra, and if possible, the year, because sometimes, sometimes certain conductors revisit pieces, you know, so you'll have different recordings. And again, limiting to 25. I know there's so many that I left out, but this will hopefully get you started. Now, if you haven't already, go back and listen to episode 13 when I talked about listening approach. So if you really want to get to know these pieces one of the things I said in there was I found through talking to a lot of musicians, getting a poll that had several hundred votes on it. You need to listen to these pieces four times to feel like, you know, them now you may listen to it and go, Oh, Hey, I have heard this before. I know that. So I'm not saying you absolutely have to do that, but I would encourage you. uh, and, And again, take advantage of streaming, listen to it four times with four different recordings. I gave you the recommended that doesn't mean that's the only one you should do. I have found recordings that are that I love that are not the ones that others have recommended and just from trying out different versions. So, and sometimes you might listen to a piece and not really care for it. But if you hear another orchestra with another conductor, it might make all the difference. That has happened multiple times with me. So check out these pieces. These are ones that you definitely should know, regardless of what type of music you like, you prefer, as a performer or a listener. All right, next week's episode will have a guest that'll come out on Monday, and I just want to remind you to make sure you're following the podcast if you're listening, or if you're on YouTube at David Lane Music one and you're watching this, please hit the thumbs up on this video, and that would be a great help. Uh, also, make sure that you're subscribed and following. And again, whether it's on YouTube or a podcast, it really helps if you will share this episode with someone who would get some interest from it. In the show notes, you'll find links to where you can find me or, and the podcast all as one, all in one on uh, various social media platforms, but that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be back with you again next week.